0: Welcome to the Latin American History Podcast. Episode 58 Westwards. I have another London centric Latin American issue to raise before starting today's episode. I'm starting to make a habit of this, so I apologise. I know it probably isn't relevant to a lot of people, but this is an issue that I think is important. I'll make this quick. One of the schools of the University of London. Is called the School of Advanced Studies. It's made up of various specialist institutes, and they've just announced that they plan to close the Institute of Latin American Studies and the Institute of Commonwealth Studies. The Institute of Latin American Studies is one of the world's most important centres for Latin American Studies, and it produces some amazing research into the region. Closing it obviously means that several academics will lose their jobs and cuts out a possible employer for future Latin Americanists. It also reduces the number of places where you can do a degree in a specialist institute that focuses on the region. Of course, if it's closed, it won't be producing new research, which will impact people interested in Latin America from all over the world, not just in Britain. Obviously, my particular interest is in Latin America, but it's also sad news that they want to close the Institute of Commonwealth Studies. Its focus is on all the areas that previously made up the British Empire, including the Caribbean, which of course is closely related to Latin America. If you want to voice your opposition to this decision, you can sign the petition, which I will put a link to in the description of this episode. The petition page also has information about how you can email the Vice-Chancellor and tell her directly why you think that the closure is a bad idea. Thanks for your patience. As I said, I will try not to make a habit of these appeals. So on to the episode. Today is the second part in this pair of episodes on the early Spanish attempts to establish themselves in what is today the USA. Last time we covered Ayon's disastrous attempt to found a colony, and we caught up with Narvaez as he set about launching an expedition of his own we also introduced his second-in-command, Cabeza de Vaca. When we left off, they were just setting sail from Spain. We know very little of the men who joined up to this expedition, but we do have some information about a few notable characters. There was Don Pedro, a member of the Aztec nobility from Texcoco. There were a number of African slaves many of whom were brought along by a nobleman named Pedro Lunel. There was Doroteo Teodoro, a Greek, and there were five Franciscan monks. Two others on the expedition were Andres Durantes de Carranza and Alonso del Castillo Maldonado. Both of these men were minor nobles from Salamanca, and they had been given joint command of one of the ships. Durantes had with him a slave named Estebanico. Estebanico was Moroccan, from the town of Azamor, and he had most likely been captured by the Portuguese, who had annexed that part of North Africa. At some point he had been purchased by Durantes, and so now he found himself headed to Florida. Remember those last three. They will be prominent characters in this story. It took ten days to reach the Canary Islands, and then another month to reach Santo Domingo. Once there, they ended up staying for another month and a half, while they restocked and undertook the preparation needed to colonise an unknown land. Santo Domingo was of course the heart of the Spanish New World, and it had by this time grown into an established city. To the average Spaniard, it would have felt exotic, but it would have had some of the comforts of home. North America, of course, would have appeared beyond exotic, and the prospect of establishing a new settlement from scratch there would have been a daunting one. A hundred and forty of the people who made up the expedition decided that they liked their prospects better in Santo Domingo, and they deserted the expedition. This would proved to be a wise choice. It's possible that their decision was informed by the story of Ayon's expedition, the survivors of which had recently returned to Santo Domingo. For those who carried on, the next stop was Cuba, which for Narvaez was home. They stopped at the town of Santiago, and then continued along the south coast of the island. They were heading for a town called Trinidad, but en route they were hit by a hurricane. Two ships, 60 men, 20 horses, and a great deal of their supplies were lost. When they eventually did make it to Trinidad, their plan would have to change. They would stay in Cuba, replace the lost ships, and gather up more supplies. Narvaez would also use the time there to find himself a navigator. A good navigator could make the difference between success and failure during these early explorations into the unknown. If Narvaez could find one who was not only skilled, but who knew the waters of the Caribbean, he would have struck gold. What Narvaez found, however, turned out to be fool's gold. Diego Murello apparently had a reputation as a great navigator, and being based in Cuba, He had explored the waters of the Northern Caribbean. What's more, he came at the recommendation of the Governor of Cuba. Pretty much, the best reference you could get. He appeared to be perfect, but he would turn out to be comically bad. After about five months, they were finally ready to leave Cuba. They planned on one more quick stop in Havana, but on the way there, after only three or four days, Miruelo led them into the Canaryos Archipelago. For all his supposed knowledge of the Caribbean, he appeared not to know the waters of his own home island. Canaryos is a series of tiny islands, reefs and sandbars, almost within sight of the coast. The expedition found itself grounded there for 15 days, before a storm came and lifted them off the rocks they'd become stuck on. Then, as they rounded Cuba's western tip, they encountered two more storms, one of which nearly sunk them. Eventually, they made it to Havana, and from there they set off for the North American continent. Now, so far I've been talking about Narvaez's trip to Florida, but the king had actually given him rights to the whole of the Gulf Coast as well, all the way into today's Mexico. Mexico. At this point, he decided that he actually wanted to colonize far to the west of Florida first, but once again, Mirelo's incompetence would step in and frustrate his plans. He had misjudged their course, and when they spotted land, it was the Tampa Bay on Florida's western coast that they had found. They landed believing that they were in northern Mexico, and Narvaez claimed it for Spain. There was an indigenous village here, and they traded some food with the inhabitants, before unloading the horses and some more men from the ships. At the sight of this, the indigenous people abandoned their village and retreated inland. In total, the Spanish would spend two weeks at Tampa Bay, during which they launched two scouting expeditions inland. The first one of these was interesting. It went north and came across another village, Here, they made a strange discovery. It appears that a Spanish ship must have been wrecked somewhere nearby at some point, and a number of things had been washed ashore. Inside European-built crates, there were pieces of Spanish clothing and headdresses from Mesoamerica. There were also the bodies of several Spaniards. All of these things would have been alien to the indigenous people and it appears that they were treating them with an almost religious reverence. It sounds a bit like the cargo cults of Papua New Guinea in the Pacific today. Of course, rather than taking this in a complimentary way, to the Spanish, this looked like idolatry. It certainly wasn't very Christian. They burnt the crates and all the items inside. Narvaez was hoping to find a rich empire, just as Cortes had done in Mexico. It was clear that no such state existed here, but, seeking to get rid of them, the villagers had told them of a richer tribe to the north, called the Apalachee. Now, theirs decided that they would go there. The bulk of the expedition would go overland, and the sailors would sail up with the boats. Thinking that they were in northern Mexico, it was thought that in Apalachee territory, they would find a river they knew of. And so this was where the boats were to wait for them. Most people agreed with the plan, but Cabesa de Vaca made it known that he wanted them to stick together and for them all to travel on the boats. Nalvaeus accused him of cowardice and told him to take charge of the boats. Cabesa de Vaca refused, not wanting to look weak, so he too marched north with the bulk of the men. They would never see the ships again. As they sailed up the coast, it became apparent that they were not where they thought they were. It dawned on them that because of this, Narvaez would probably be looking for the wrong landmarks, and would probably be making incorrect decisions based on this. This also meant that the river they were looking for would not be found, and this further lowered their chances of reuniting. After four months searching for the land party, They were starting to run out of food, and they were becoming desperate. Muelo had been sent back to Cuba to fetch more supplies, and his return to the Florida coast came just in time. Together they would spend the next year sailing up and down the coast, without ever finding a trace of the expedition. Eventually their new supplies started to run out, and concluding that Narvaez and his men must have died, they headed back to Cuba. Now, Nalvaez's wife was on one of the ships, and understandably she was against giving up. When she got back to Cuba, she paid for two ships to commence a new rescue mission, but these two found no sign of them. There is a story that A. Diego Mirello would later return to Florida, but having not written anything down, fail to find anywhere he recognised. The story goes that this search would drive him insane. Information about this story is conflicting and confused, however. I've seen the story associated with the Ion expedition rather than the Narvaez one. It also looks like he may have had an uncle, who was also a navigator, and who had exactly the same name. I don't want to say, then, that this is definitely what happened to Morello in later life. But, if it was, it's a final example of the incompetence that marks his whole existence in the historical record. So although they don't know either of these things yet, Narvaez and his men are alone, and they're marching north through Florida. They came across a few more indigenous peoples as they made their way up the peninsula, and through a combination of trade and theft, they managed to obtain enough food to survive until they reached The Apalachee. Already, food was becoming a problem. It was now a year since they'd left Spain, and nothing had gone to plan. Apalachee would be no different. They had reached the top of the Florida peninsula, where the coast curved westwards, and they were probably starting to realise that they were in the wrong place. The Apalachee settlements were indeed bigger than the villages they had encountered so far, but... This didn't look like the metropolis they had hoped for. The land here was fertile, and the Apalachee had managed to build an agricultural state, which could exert power on the surrounding semi-nomadic peoples. It wasn't, however, another Aztec empire. Narvaez first encountered one of their outlying villages, and he ordered Cabeza de Vaca to take a small group and attack it. They did this successfully, and the expedition occupied the settlement for 25 days, raiding the food stores while they were there. The whole time, however, they were under attack, and at one point, the Apalachí even managed to set fire to the huts the Spanish were sheltering in. Things weren't looking great, and cracks were growing in Narvaez and Cabesa de Vaca's relationship. Hungry, under attack, and not knowing where they were, the Spaniards' expectations were lowering. They were starting to forget about setting up a successful colony, and instead, wondering how they could make it back to the Caribbean with their lives. Some of the captives they had taken, no doubt seeking to deflect the Spanish away from their territory, told them that there was a town nearby, called Aote, whose inhabitants were rich and powerful. Narvaez brought their story, and he went in search of it. They soon discovered that getting there meant crossing a swamp. Wading through deep water, they were easy targets for the Apalachee, who attacked them as they went. They survived nine days of this, but during this time disease had started to spread. When they reached Aote, they found its population had abandoned it, burning it down as they left. At least it was by the sea, so they thought they had a chance of reuniting with the ships. They soon discovered that the water here was shallow though, so the ships wouldn't have been able to enter the bay on which they found themselves. There were now about 250 men left, and Narvaez himself was starting to show signs of illness. How were they going to get themselves out of this mess? There was no prospect of salvation by marching in any direction. All they could look forward to was more of what they had experienced so far. They didn't even know where they were, but wherever it was, the nearest Spanish settlement was Spanish Mexico. They had no idea how far that was, and we know that it was a very long way. They would spend a month and a half camped by the sea, deciding what to do and they were reduced to eating their horses. Eventually, they settled on a plan. They built fires and an improvised forge to melt down their weapons. These were remade into crude tools that could be used to cut wood. The wood they cut was used to build rafts. As dangerous as it was, drifting out to sea and hopefully to Mexico was their only option. Needless to say, with the resources at their disposal... These rafts were basic, making the plan even more dangerous. But it is impressive that they managed to build them at all. Once they were ready, they set off. It took them a week to clear the shallow bay, and then for the next month, they drifted westwards along the coast, hoping that a Spanish settlement, or perhaps even a ship, would come into view. Occasionally, they would go ashore to find food and water, But these were, of course, always in short supply. Bad weather forced them to stop on a small island, and over the five days they were obliged to stay there, people started to die of dehydration. There was no water source on the island, so then they were forced to brave the storms in an attempt to reach the mainland. Somehow they managed it, and luckily for them, the indigenous people they encountered there took them in, and gave them food and water. It wasn't long, though, before they turned hostile. They attacked the Spaniards in the night, killing three and forcing the rest to make a run for their rats. The weather was still bad, though, and they couldn't launch for another day. During this time, they were under constant threat of more attacks. After three more days at sea, they again ran out of water, and were obliged to land. The people they found when they did were also hostile, and they didn't get any water. Teodoro, the Greek, and another man were killed. If they had known the local geography, they probably wouldn't have stopped. The next day they reached the mouth of the Mississippi River, and thus their water problems were fixed for now. They could drink straight from the fresh water of the river, The Mississippi, however, presented them with a new problem. All of that water flowing out of the estuary did not stop when it reached the open sea. It surged onwards into the gulf. The rafts needed to stay close to land, not just so that they could get water, but also because they weren't really seaworthy. They were hard to steer, and soon, despite their best efforts, they were being pushed out into the sea and separated. Narvaez's raft made it to shore, but not before he had refused to help Cabesa de Vaca, whose raft was nearby but being pushed in the other direction. Eventually, all five of the rafts did make it to land, but each did so on a different part of the coast. Cabesa de Vaca only just made it, spending several supplyless days on the water. Another of the rafts was pushed all the way to Texas where its men were killed by the local Camones people. The fourth raft was broken up as it reached the shore, and the men were forced to start walking. After a few days, they came across Narvaez, but this group was now too big to use the raft that they still had access to. The two groups started to argue, and Narvaez took to sleeping on the raft for protection. According to Cabeza de Vaca, one man from this group of about 80 survived. The man told them that the raft had come loose in the middle of the night, taking Narvaez out to sea. He was never heard from again. Gobeza de Vaca's raft, and the men on the fifth and final one, continued separately their journey along the coast, until, by coincidence, they both stopped on the same island. This was probably one of the islands around where Galveston, Texas is today. Cabeza de Vaca had about 40 men with him. Before they had discovered their compatriots, they found themselves surrounded by the indigenous inhabitants. They turned out to be friendly, and they brought the Spanish some food. Cabeza de Vaca decided to set off again, but his raft was overturned and destroyed, and they were washed back to shore. They lost two men in the process. This forced them to seek out the indigenous village and rely on the goodwill of the inhabitants. Luckily, this was forthcoming, and they were alerted to the presence of the other Spaniards on the island. After reuniting, they decided that the strongest men would set off on the one remaining raft, it not being big enough for them all. The others would wait to be rescued. Again, though, As soon as they tried to go out to sea, it sank. With the exception of four men who set off walking, and probably died soon afterwards, the group decided that they had no choice but to stay put. They did not know this yet, but they would be there for six years. I say that, only a few of them will be. Most will die, pretty quickly. It was winter now, and it was a cold one. Of the roughly 80 there, all but 15 died of exposure and lack of food over the first few months. Their relationship with the locals also started to break down. The Spanish were a burden, being unable to support themselves in this alien environment. They could only survive thanks to the kindness of the indigenous people. Some of them resorted to eating the bodies of their dead comrades, and this horrified their hosts. It's thought that these bodies created the conditions for dysentery, and this then wiped out a large number of the indigenous people. They didn't understand what was happening, but they knew that the Spanish were somehow to blame. Powerless to resist and being so dependent for survival, the Spanish became de facto slaves, and they were forced to work. Soon they were separated and passed around between the different ethnic groups in the area. Cabeza de Vaca was given to a group on the mainland, and he didn't see any of his countrymen for several years. Eventually, besides him, there were just three men left. Dorantes and Castillo, the two co-captains, and Estebanico, the Moroccan slave belonging to Durantes. Now that they were all slaves, he probably enjoyed equal status to his former master. These three managed to escape the island, but once ashore, they were enslaved again. They were, however, a step closer to escaping for good, and, being on the mainland, brought them into contact with Cabeza de Vaca. The four of them made another escape plan. Over the course of several days, Durantes, Castillo, and Estebanico slipped away, and joined a neighbouring indigenous group. This group was hostile to those they'd been living with, so they didn't send them back. It took Cabeza de Vaca another month to find an opportunity to escape under the cover of darkness. Once again reunited, they fled from this new group and started walking southwards. I would say that this was an all-or-nothing gamble, walking into the inhospitable unknown, But this was just the latest of countless all-or-nothing gambles. They had pretty much been at nothing for years, so they didn't really have anything to lose. They soon found an ingenious way of making themselves useful to the peoples whose lands they passed through, and this helped ensure that they were not attacked. They somehow managed to convince pretty much everyone they came into contact with that they had healing powers, And so, the various indigenous people brought them a steady stream of patients to be cured. Cabeza de Vaca says that they would make the sign of the cross and say Christian prayers, which of course could not be understood. And the mysticism of this convinced people that they had these special powers. Castillo's father had been a doctor back in Spain, so it's plausible that he had some basic medical knowledge. Perhaps he incorporated this into their ceremonies. The next episode of note came when the survivors reached the land of a people called the Avavares. They lived somewhere around today's Corpus Christi Bay. The Avavares had already heard of them, and they spoke a similar language to the people they had lived with, meaning that they could communicate. They were welcomed in, and more healing ceremonies took place. In total, they spent eight months there, and this experience. Was very different to the years in Galveston. They were treated as honored guests and given enough food to regain some strength. Eventually they continued, going further south across what is today the border and into Mexico. The land was now getting even more desolate, but with the help of the local people, they managed to survive largely on a diet of prickly pears. In relative terms, they had almost made it to safety now. Roughly 500 kilometres further south lay the first Spanish outposts. Now that's a great distance to walk, but nothing compared to how far they had come. For some reason, though, and Cabeza de Vaca in his account of the expedition doesn't explain why, they decided to change their course. They went west into the Sierra Madre mountains, and then they even started heading north. After this, they settled on a northwesterly direction. All along the way, they continued to heal people, and apparently, they would sometimes find themselves doing this in front of several thousand people. They were passing through the deserts of Coahuila and Chihuahua, and without the hospitality gained thanks to their healing rituals, it's unlikely that they would have been able to survive. Eventually, they reached an area known as La Junta de los Rios. Here, where two rivers met, the environment was kinder, and the local people had been able to develop a settled farming culture. This was a contrast to everyone they had encountered since the Apalachee. All the other indigenous groups had been nomadic hunters and gatherers. The people of La Junta fed them from their stores of corn, and they spent a few weeks there deciding what to do. They were told that to the north were the people of the cows, whereas to the west were the people of the corn. Cows were introduced to the Americas by the Spanish, so it's not clear what animals Cabesa de Vaca and his hosts were actually referring to. It's unlikely that there were cows in this area at this time. Cabesa de Vaca says that going north was the wrong direction, making the earlier decision to do just that even more confusing. So they elected to follow what he calls the Corn Trail. To begin with, it was difficult going. At first, they didn't find any villages with stores of corn. Eventually, though, these started appearing, and they found themselves in what was probably the most developed region they had been in since Cuba. By this point, they had walked so far west that they had come very close to reaching the shores of the Pacific Ocean, somewhere on the Gulf of California. California. One day, Castillo noticed that the necklace that one of the local people wore had hanging on it a Spanish belt buckle. The man told them that people just like them had been there not too long ago, and that they had left via the sea. Cabeza de Vaca says that they were delighted, and that they had begun to despair that they would never see Christians again. They were still, of course, to the north of Spanish Mexico. However, In the time that they'd been away, small bands of Spaniards had started launching slaving raids into this region. It was one of these that had left the belt buckle behind, and according to the man who had it, these Spaniards had killed two of his people. These raids were starting to have a significant effect on the area, and as the survivors went south, they started noticing these effects, and encountering More and more signs of Spanish activity. Villages were deserted, and the remains of camps were found. Some of these camps contained items related to looking after horses, which, of course, only the Spanish had access to. The further they went, the more afraid the indigenous people were, and the more stories these people had of brutal slaving incursions into their territory. Finally, in early 1536, the survivors spotted four Spanish horsemen in the distance. They must have looked a strange sight. The slavers were used to people running away, yet these men walked straight towards them. Once they got close enough for the slavers to get a proper look at them, the slavers would have noticed how wild they looked. Next, it probably would have become clear that despite their ragged appearance, they were European. But then, of course... There was Estebanico. They would have probably realized he wasn't Spanish and wondered who he was, where he came from, and how he ended up being part of this strange group. The men took Cabeza de Vaca and Estebanico to their leader, who was camped nearby on the Rio Sinaloa. Castillo and Durantes stayed behind with the indigenous people who were acting as their guides. This meeting was not quite the moment of joy that you might expect. When Devaka told the slave captain of their adventures, he wasn't particularly interested. He was more interested in the group of potential slaves that Devaka said were nearby than he was in what these men had survived. To his credit, Cabeza Devaka says that after all their hardships, they chose to risk their potential rescue. They stormed off in a bid to protect their guides. Once they returned to Durantes and Castillo, they told the guides to return home, but apparently they refused, saying that they were obligated to accompany them into the care of the next indigenous group. Cabesa de Vaca tried to explain that, horrible as they were, the slavers were their countrymen and they had no more need of protection. Eventually the guides did leave the survivors, and they returned to the slavers, who agreed to take them back to the Spanish world. Culiacan was the northernmost Spanish settlement, and it was another 90 miles to the south. This is where they headed, and when they got there, they were taken straight to the mayor. They told him their story, and he made sure that they were looked after. They were finally safe. I think that the story of the four survivors of the Narvaez expedition is one of the most incredible we have covered in this podcast so far. And there have been already a lot of incredible stories. We are lucky that Cabeza de Vaca wrote up an account of his adventures. In this account, he goes into huge amounts of detail about the people they encountered, the terrain they passed through, and what they were thinking as they went. Unfortunately, I've had to cut most of it out and include only the main events of the story. I highly recommend reading it yourself if you get a chance. The ethnographic detail of the peoples of the Galveston region is particularly fascinating. After a few weeks recovering in Culiacan, they travelled to the regional capital, a town called Compostela, and from there they went to Tenochtitlan. Cabeza de Vaca will go on to have more incredible adventures, and he will reappear on the podcast in the future. Durantes and Castillo stayed in Mexico. They soon became wealthy and important members of colonial society there. Castillo married and got himself an encomienda near the town of Tehuacán, roughly a 100 miles south of Tenochtitlan. Durantes did the same, and his encomienda was near Atzalan, which is between Tenochtitlan and Veracruz. Castillo also served as mayor of Tenochtitlan for a year, and he unsuccessfully tried to become a councillor. Durantes later chose to return to the Culiacan region to help the Spanish fight against an uprising of the indigenous people there. Once they returned to Spanish society, and despite their shared story of survival, Estebanico legally returned to being Durantes' slave. Despite the legal differences in power and status, however, they were said to be friends. So when the Viceroy of New Spain asked personally for Estebanico's assistance in his campaigns in northern Mexico, Durantes at first refused to let his slave go. Later, though, he relented, and Estebanico was sent to act as a guide. We don't know what his opinion of this was, and he had no legal choice in the matter. It's possible he wanted to go and persuaded Durantes to let him. His job was to go ahead, to scout the route, and to tell the indigenous people he came across that they should accept the incoming Spanish army as conquerors. He was chosen because he had travelled there already, and at first he was welcomed by peoples who apparently recognised him. To help him achieve his aims, he took up his spiritual healer act again, but soon he reached a people who did not know him, did not believe him, and who were not friendly to the idea of an arriving Spanish army. It's believed that he was killed, although there are legends that say that he ran away and lived out the rest of his life among the indigenous people of northern Mexico. By the time the survivors had made their way back from the wilderness, much had changed in Spanish America. It was now 1536, and something had happened that was as momentous as Cortez's conquest of the Aztec. The next episode will be the first in a series covering the conquest of the Inca. You've been listening to the Latin American History podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com/the-history-of-latin-america, and that's spelt. M A X S E R J E A N T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History Latin A M, and if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at wwwetsycom Photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com/slash M A X S E R J E A N T. Photo. Thanks for listening. Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime.